We're going to be continuing this week in our series looking at the New Testament book of Luke. We began last week uh, from chapter 3 and this week we're going to be reading together from Luke chapter 4 verses 1 through to 13. Uh, We're going to go similarly to the way we did last week so rather than reading the whole passage uh, and then breaking it down we're going to Uh, read it chunk by chunk, and seek to apply it as we go. So I'm going to quickly find my notes, and then we'll get going. Good. Now, it's really important as we approach today's passage to remember that the chapter and verse divisions we have in our Bibles now uh, were not there originally. Um, They're a later edition, and they're really helpful to help us navigate around Scripture uh, as we open it. Uh, They can be helpful to give us some broad indication of the kind of themes that are being covered uh, in in a book of the Bible. But they can also sometimes cause us to, to miss the point or to not quite grasp the fullness of what is being said because we just read from the beginning of the chapter and forget what's happened just before. So I want to say today, as we approach these verses, it's very important that we don't forget what's come just before. And I'm going to remind you of that in a moment. So the the verses that we're going to look at today uh, are a very famous story. It tells the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness as he, following his baptism, which we looked at together last week, he goes out full of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness, and he is tempted by Satan. Uh, and we're going to look at that together now. Uh, but, but before we get into it, I just want to remind you of one of the very key things that Luke was eager to point out to us in chapter 3 that we looked at together last week. And that was as he gave the genealogy of Jesus, he was wanted us to be in no doubt that Jesus is the true Son of God, the eternal Son of God, that Jesus was God in human flesh, but that equally, as he gave the genealogy, he rooted Jesus firmly in a human lineage, and he was keen that we understood Jesus as fully God, but as also fully man, And as we read through that genealogy, the last thing we read in chapter 3, as we read through Jesus' lineage, is that we conclude with the son of Adam, the son of God. That Jesus was in the line of Adam, too. He was fully man. And we need to remember that as we read, because as we approach these verses today we need to remember what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. We need to have in mind as we read these verses what happened when Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden of Eden by Satan and where they succumbed to temptation and fell into sin. We're going to see. Will Jesus follow in the pattern of Adam, or will he resist the devil? 
That's part one of our context. That needs to play in the back of our minds as we read these verses today. The next thing that we need to notice as we set out is that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, set out into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit and and was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness for 40 days. There are more key parts of context in just those two sentences that we mustn't miss if we're going to grasp what's going on. And the first is this, is that he went into the wilderness for 40 days. Now God's people, the Israelites, were in and exploring. Some spies went into the promised land, the land that God had given them, promised to them, for 40 days. But they failed to take God at his word that he delivered that land to them. And because they were scared of the giants there, they ended up, because of their disobedience, wandering around the wilderness for 40 years. Luke wants us to have that history, as well as Adam and Eve's history in the Garden of Eden, in our minds as we read this account of the temptation of Jesus. Adam and Eve in the garden, their temptation and fall, and the Israelites 40 years in the wilderness, which was marked by failure after failure after failure to trust God and live in obedience to God. And he also critically wants us to see that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. That this was God's plan. (laughs) This was God's initiative. And so when the devil comes to tempt Jesus, which we read about in a moment, it wasn't a surprise to God. It's like the devil didn't kind of have some kind of surprise ambush. (laughs) Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tested. And the reason that this is really, really important, that we have these bits of context, that we understand it's God who led him there to be tested, and that we remember Adam and Eve in the garden, and we remember the Israelites wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, failure after failure after failure, is that Luke wants us to understand what's at stake here as Jesus goes into the wilderness. He wants us to understand what's at stake. Would Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve and the Israelites before him had failed? Jesus was fully man. Remember, that's, that was part of the point of the genealogy, to set him in context of humanity. He was fully able to sin as man. His human experience was was complete. It was total. It wasn't just a disguise. Like, Jesus wasn't kind of God disguised as a man. (laughs) He was man, fully man, with all the weaknesses and limitations that come with that. He remained fully God, but as he took on flesh and became a son of Adam, he set aside the exercise of his divine power and divine knowledge. Jesus 
God's fully God, yes, but fully man with all the limitations and restrictions that came with that. He was able to sin. So the scene is set. The tension is real. Will the second Adam, Jesus, the Son of God, succeed where the first Adam, Son of God, failed? Will the one who's come to fulfill the promise given to Abraham and to bring about a new covenant succeed where the Israelites, God's covenant people, had failed? Where Adam failed and where the Israelites repeatedly failed, Jesus must succeed. If Jesus doesn't succeed where they failed, then all is lost. God's rescue plan for humanity is over. The stakes could not be higher. We need to understand that as we approach these verses. And so understanding the significance and weight of it, let's read the first temptation Jesus faced. We're going to read from verse 2. Oh, actually, from halfway through verse (laughs) 1. was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, then command this stone to become bread. Hmm. Jesus the eternal Son of God. We just reminded ourselves of that, yeah, but having taken on human flesh, he had all the weaknesses of that, and that included the experience of real, deep hunger. Jesus had been in the deserts, in the wilderness, for 40 days, fasting, no food. He was hungry. And the devil comes to him, knows who he's speaking to, he appeals to his pride. He says, if you're the son of God, if, if you are who you say you are, you know, if that's really who you are, then you can use your position to satisfy your hunger. The devil tempts him to use his position as the son of God, to use the authority that he had to satisfy his hunger instead of trusting his father. Now guys, this is an extraordinary temptation. I think any of us can even begin to understand this level of temptation. Because you can't turn stones into bread. (laughs) But he could. Jesus, the Son of God, could pick back up his divine, supreme power and do it in a moment. No problem. His hunger would have been screaming at him for 40 days. No food. If you are 
prove it and satisfy your hunger. This is an appeal as well to say, you don't actually need to go through this. You don't need to put yourself through this. You have the means to put an end to this. You can, you can satisfy your hunger. But really, this temptation was about trust. It was all about who Jesus would trust to provide and who he would obey and submit to. Would Jesus bow to his human impulse and appetite and hunger and the devil's tempting? Or would he continue in obedience to and trust of the Father who had led him into the wilderness for this period of fasting and who promises to provide for the needs of his people? Jesus knew that Adam and Eve and the Israelites had failed here before. See, Satan came to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? And he tempted them too with food. I mean, not even close on the temptation that Jesus faces now of 40 days of extreme hunger. Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden surrounded by amazing, bountiful provision from God. The fruit of all of the trees, the produce around them in this abundant garden, teeming with life, the most fruitful garden you could possibly imagine, surrounded by amazing food provided by God, told by God that they may eat of all of this, except for the fruit of one tree. And Satan came to them and tempted them with that one. Tempted them to step beyond God's provision and seize something that wasn't for them. To take it, take matters into their own hands. And they gave in. Jesus knew it all too well. And in Exodus 16, we find the Israelites, God's people, having been brought out of slavery in Egypt, having been brought freedom by God, led out into the wilderness. And they grumbled against God. We read in Exodus chapter 16 that they they grumbled against him. And they ended up saying, you know, we might have been slaves in Egypt, but... At least there we had full stomachs and they longed for the the stews that they ate in slavery in Egypt. It's like, God, you brought us out here to die. They didn't trust him having brought them freedom. They didn't trust him to provide for them. You know, we might have been slaves back there, but at least we weren't hungry. What's the point of being free if we're going to die? But Jesus also knew that in his kindness, God met their need. And he provided for them in spite of their grumbling. God provided for their manna from heaven and quail for them to eat. Jesus knew while he was tempted that he didn't need to take matters into his own hands. That he could trust 
God to provide. He knew that his heavenly Father could and would provide what was needed for him. And so instead of listening to his hunger, instead of listening to his appetite, he chose to trust his Father in heaven. My heavenly Father hasn't seen fit to provide me bread here in the wilderness, then I have no right to take matters into my own hands and seize that for myself. I'm trusting him to provide what I need. So he responds to the devil. And he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes words from scripture. He quotes God's word to the devil. Verses from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which says, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus was saying to the devil, I'm trusting my heavenly Father to provide what I need. I'm not going to seize this for myself. Jesus might have felt so hungry that he was on the brink of death, but he was trusting his Father who had led him there to sustain him there. He answered the devil with scripture. Jesus viewed God's word as as authoritative and true, that it could be relied upon, that it was trustworthy. If, If God had said it, it's true. This is massive, right? The temptation was real. Jesus was human and he was hungry. The devil tempted him with something that was easy for the Son of God to do. But he knew what was at stake. And as an obedient son, he trusted his father's provision. Now, I guess you've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. I've never been tempted to turn stones into bread. It's never even crossed my mind, to be honest. (laughs) But I tell you what, we are often tempted to take matters into our own hands and believe that we know what's best in spite of what God says in his word, in spite of what he has provided for us. Each one of us has hungers, appetites that we believe need satisfying. They were told so often, aren't we, in this world? It's kind of follow your heart. It's like follow your appetites. Like if that's your desire, if that's what you want, then, then fill up on it, satisfy it, find what it is that will meet that hunger. Sometimes those appetites are in conflict with God's word. God has said that, that is not what will satisfy you. That is not good for you that is beyond my provision for you like Adam and Eve in the garden with this amazing bountiful provision from God and yet the one thing that Satan tempts them with and the one thing they go for is the one thing that God has said that is off limits because I love you and because I have your best 
interest, that heart, and yet each one of us feels the temptation to follow our appetites and to disobey God's word. It works out in all kinds of ways in our lives. We step outside of God's design for us because what it boils down to is that we don't trust him. He does have our best at heart. And when he says, no, that's not good for you, we don't believe him because we want it. We desire it. And so we reach out and take it. If we were Christ in the desert, we turn those stones into bread and we feast. Like the Israelites in the desert, we grumble against God but I want it so badly. It's like you brought me out here to die without that thing. Yet where we fail, Jesus succeeded. And that's good news for us. Boiled at his first attempt. The devil tries again to tempt Jesus. He comes from a slightly different angle this time. We read from verse five, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. The devil presents Jesus with the promise of worship, of the promise of adoration from people and submission from all nations, that he would have authority over all nations. He says, you'll have authority over them. They'll glorify you. They'll worship you. In effect, Satan promises Jesus a world in which everyone will look to him and bow to him. And all he has to do is worship Satan. Just bow the knee to him. In other words, the devil tries to tempt Jesus with the promise of a crown without the pain of the cross. He tries to tempt him with the promise of glory and authority on earth without suffering. This was surely a powerful, powerful temptation, yeah? Bypass all the pain and suffering and receive instant satisfaction, instant exaltation, instant adoration from all the peoples of the earth. And this wasn't an empty, hollow promise. See, we read in Scripture that Satan's power, whilst limited, whilst restricted, whilst pitiful compared with the might and authority and power of God, Satan is called, even by Jesus, the ruler of this world. Satan actually offered what he could deliver. He says to him, in effect, you don't need to go through all that. You don't need to obey your Father in heaven to receive the worship. 
You can have all of this now if you just bow to me. The adoration of all these people. See, this temptation to, to usurp the authority, to, to, to overturn the authority of the Father, to reject the Father and to, to reject and abandon the plan of salvation that which Christ had come to accomplish and instead act out of self-interest, instead act out of a personal desire to be glorified, to be revered, to be worshipped by all people. The temptation is short-term pleasure, but at monumental long-term cost for all of humanity. No salvation. You and I forever cut off from God. Those created for relationship with God. That's the, the purpose we were created as humanity was to enjoy relationship with our creator, to delight in him and, and dwell with him and, and worship him and, and be with him, to, to share in his love, cut off from that prospect forever so that Jesus, if he followed the Satan's temptation would receive forced praise and glory and adoration and worship that actually he hadn't earned and didn't deserve. For Jesus, though, this must have been a tantalizing proposition. You know, don't you, how alluring, how tempting the promise of praise and adoration is. How good it feels when people look at you and go, wow. Whether that's for, for your accomplishments, your intellect, your looks. Satan says to him, Every eye around the globe, every fiber of every being will look at you and glorify you and obey you if you just do this. Just one brief bow. And again, Jesus responds to this temptation with scripture. He comes back again to, to God's word and he says to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm not going to bow to you and worship you. <laughs> God and God alone deserves worship. This time he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 13, when Moses delivers God's word to the Israelites who were tempted into idolatry. They were tempted to bow to false gods instead of the one true God. 
the devil's appeal to Adam and Eve was in many ways similar. He's saying you don't need to deny yourself this thing. You can be gratified now. Take and eat now and you will be like God. Adam and Eve failed. The Israelites failed. They chased after other gods. They made idols for themselves that they set up and bowed down to. Jesus doesn't fail. The temptation to us in many ways is the same. We want to be the ones in charge. We want to have authority. We want to receive glory. And ideally, we want to do that at no cost to ourselves. We want that to be easy and pain-free. The impulse of fallen humanity is to look for the easy way out, to follow the path of least resistance, to think about what will make us feel comfortable now, what will bring us pleasure now, what will glorify us now, what will cause people to look at us and go, wow, they're great. Sin is so, so, so often driven this way. And in our short-sightedness, we grasp after that which we think will satisfy us and give us pleasure. We live our lives longing to be adored and praised by others. Social media is basically predicated on that entire principle. You post something that you think will make you look as good as you possibly can so that other people go, wow, (laughs) they're praiseworthy. Don't use that vocabulary, but that's what's going on. The promise of pleasure causes people to make stupid, short-sighted decisions. The promises of money and power and glory draw people along into all manner of things. Marriages get ruined through affairs. Debts mount up as people chase after the life that they want. Where we fail, Jesus succeeded. And that's good news. He refused to take the easy way out. Instead, knowing what it would cost, he embraced the cross. He chose obedience to the Father, even though it would mean great personal pain. He didn't take the bait of selfish gratification. Instead, full of the Spirit, Jesus trusted his heavenly Father and he stood firm on his word. Where Adam failed, where the Israelites failed, where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus too, Satan, nil. Finally, the devil gives it one last shot. And he takes Jesus up to the roof of the temple in Jerusalem, we read from verse 9. And he took him up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Having cottoned on 
to Jesus' tactic of using God's word to overcome the first two temptations and the devil's first two attempts to derail God's salvation plan, Satan decides this time that he will quote scripture too. Interesting, right? Even the devil's quite happy for you to open the Bible as long as you don't submit to God's authority, as long as you don't take it seriously or use it in context. As long as you sit over it and you use it to accomplish your ends and your means, so it says what you want and makes you feel comfortable and supports you, then the devil's very, very happy with that. Even he was happy to use scripture that way. If you are the son of God, then jump. And he quotes Psalm 91. Surely he will send his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they will bear you up. It's a famous psalm about God's protection and God's defense of his faithful ones from their enemies. And Satan is now saying to Jesus, okay, You've said that you're determined to obey God's word and you trust it to be true, then prove it. Obey this. Now this might seem really properly crazy to us. But again, the temptation to Jesus would have been real. See, if Jesus were to do this, it would be a great display of who he was. God's faithful It would win him a great number of followers. It would give even further credence to his claim as the true son of God. People would glorify him, surely. But Jesus knew that that was not the father's plan. Not yet. Now what would have happened if Jesus had jumped? Well, it might be that God would have miraculously intervened and protected Jesus. We don't know. You see, in the first temptation, the devil was right to assume that the Son of God could miraculously produce bread from a stone. He could have. In the second temptation, the devil was also right that the Son of God will receive authority over all the kingdoms of the world. Not now. But when he returns in glory. And it may well be that the devil was correct, that physical protection would have been made available to Jesus if he'd jumped. And there's not really any indication when we read the text that either Jesus or the devil thought this was a trap that would result in Jesus' death. There's not really any indication from it that what's going on here is the, the kind of temptation to commit suicide. The assumption is that he would have survived, that he would have been preserved and protected, that he would have proved who he was. But that wasn't the point. The big problem with the devil's temptation is not that it may have killed Jesus because it wouldn't have done. 
but that it would have corrupted him, that it, it would have been in disobedience to the Father. Again, it would have been taking things into his own hands, seizing for himself in that moment what he wasn't supposed to. It would have been a deviation from the Father's plan, rescue plan. It would have been disobedience. And Jesus was determined to stay the course. And so again, he responds with Scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He again quotes from Deuteronomy. It's the same few chapters that he's quoted from this whole time, and this time from Deuteronomy 6.16, which references an event in Exodus 17 where God's people grumbled and complained, not this time about the lack of food, but about water, the lack of water in the desert. And they accused Moses of leading them into the wilderness to die, and they questioned, is God even with us? They lost faith. They doubted God. They doubted his provision. And they wanted a sign. Now God, again, graciously and amazingly gave them a sign. Water from a rock. But they were warned not to test God. They were warned that their lack of trust that had led them to testing. It's easy for us to do this. And if you've ever been there, but we try and bargain with God over things. It's like, you know, if, if you do this, <laughs> then I'll believe in you. Or, or, or if you provide this for me, then I'll trust you with that. But where we fail, Jesus succeeded. Jesus would not put God to the test. He would not put it to the test. If I jump, will God rescue me? He says, I'm not going to test God. He trusted. He didn't need a sign to know that God was with him, unlike the Israelites out in the wilderness. He trusted. Unable to lead Jesus into sin, the devil slopes off, decides he'll come back another day. Since when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him till an opportune time. Jesus Christ suffered, was tempted as a real man. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And that means, as we read in Hebrews 4 verse 15, that when we are tempted, he is able to identify with us in our weakness because he became weak, because he experienced temptation, agonizing, overwhelming temptation, and yet he didn't sin. And because he can identify with us in our weakness, when we struggle, when we're tempted, when we're battling, when we find things hard, we can find great comfort. And he doesn't stand aloof, unable to, to identify what's going on with us. But he comes alongside. He says, I know what it's like to experience that. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. And I'm here for you. In every temptation, he's there to help, to encourage, to strengthen. Jesus also conquered because he was full of the Holy Spirit. It's key that we understand that from these verses. And if you are going to resist temptation, 
if I'm going to resist temptation, then we need to be people who go on being filled by the Holy Spirit. People who consciously and deliberately rely on the empowering presence of God in our lives. And Jesus stood strong because he stood on the foundation of Scripture. If we are going to resist temptation, we need to be those who know and understand and apply God's word in our lives. We need to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit. And we need to be full of the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, we need to be those who take heart knowing that where we fail, Jesus has succeeded. And that for those who trust in him, for those who hope in him, for those who find forgiveness in him, there is now no condemnation. Because he succeeded, there is forgiveness and restoration for us. At the cross, Jesus exchanged his sinless, spotless record for our filthy, soiled stained sinfulness. He exchanged it that we might stand clean, that we might stand forgiven. If we repent of our sins and we put our trust in him, we receive forgiveness. We receive lasting life with him because where we fail, he succeeded. We're going to sing one final song together as we conclude our time this afternoon. I'm going to pray and then hand back to Rich and Cypher Abbey. Oh Jesus, thank you so much that we see when we read these verses that where we fail, where, where I've given in to temptation, where I've followed my appetites instead of surrendering to your will where I've sought to try and seize power and position and authority for myself instead of trusting you. Thank you, Jesus, that you succeeded where I failed, where we failed. Lord, thank you that you lived the perfect, faultless life and that you bore our sin on yourself at the cross. You owned it as though it were your own. Though you knew no sin, you became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. That is just stunning. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, I pray that this week you would help us to trust in you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to look to you, to, to be quick to repent of our sins and to find in you forgiveness. And we ask to Holy Spirit, Oh, Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh? Even right now, Lord, right now in this room, right now in our living rooms at home, would you fill us with your Spirit that we would be those who are able to stand firm and resist the temptation. We would live for you and for your glory. Amen.